All right, it's time for us to take some time to look at the Word of God, to see what the Word of God teaches us. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer to ask His guidance on our time in His Word. Well, Father, we're so thankful that we have You to come to, that we are to walk by the Spirit that You have indwelt us with, that we might have a closer relationship with You. You have given us Your Word that marks out the path that God the Holy Spirit leads us along. As we study your word, it is God the Holy Spirit who drives this deep into our soul so that he can retrieve it, bring it to our mind and memory so that we can use it during the time in which we face trials and testing and difficulties. It is your word that tells us about our salvation. It is your word that tells us about how to grow as newborn babes in Christ, and it is your word that tells us about your plan and purpose for mankind, your plan and purpose for Israel, and your plan and purpose for the church. It is your word that directs us to you as the author of history and the one who superintends history to the goal that you have directed from eternity past. Now, Father, as we look at your word tonight, we're looking at a passage that has probably had as many different interpretations as any other difficult passage in Scripture, a passage that is uh, often used in many different ways and often misused. Help us to think clearly about this passage, to reflect upon it, to think about its context, to think about the meaning here, that we might rightly divide your word of truth, that we might use it accurately, and that we might thereby guide and direct others. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. And the question we're addressing is, does Romans 10, 9 and 10 talk about salvation as a two-step process? Down here in Texas, a lot of people do a dance called the Texas Two-Step. So... I think that there are some people who fall and pray to a to the devil's two-step by a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of this particular passage. I don't know about everyone in this room, but I know there are, there's a large number of us that when we were young, we were introduced to a way of presenting the gospel to folks that's called the Roman Road. How many of you all have learned the Roman Road? Okay, Roman Road, what's the first starting point? that all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Second step, the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, if all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, of course now we've sort of learned that maybe Romans 6.23 isn't really talking about salvation, phase one, justification. Maybe it's talking about something else related to sanctification, what about the third step on the Roman road, which is Romans 10, 9, and 10? Now, in the book that, uh, as they asked us to write the paper for this, we use the ESV, the English Standard Version, 
And I was kind of glad to do that. I really hadn't worked with it before, and they do blooper the translation a little bit, but we'll start with that as a starting point because that's what's in the paper. And towards the end, I'll switch over to uh, the New King James, which is a little better translation. Romans 10, 9, 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, that's the ESV translation, which I do not agree with, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And you see, there are many people who think that, well, if you get saved, you need to trust in Jesus, and then you need to tell someone about it. There's an order there, isn't there? First you believe, and then you tell someone. But that's not the order in the beginning of the verse, is it? The order in the beginning of the verse is first you confess, then you believe. Wait a minute, what? Well, you're making too much about that. Let, let's just move on to the next next question. So the next question is, well, what happens if a person only trusts in Christ for salvation from sin and never tells anyone? I've known a few people around here like that. <laughs> you know, they trusted in Christ and they thought, well, you know... Maybe I'm making a mistake here. I don't want to do this for the wrong reason, so I'm just going to keep quiet about it for a while. What if they got hit by a Mack truck the next day? Would they be saved? Um, or are they only half saved? Do they have to spend a little time in, in purgatory or something? Will they still go to heaven if they die? If they only got halfway there, they believed, but they didn't confess. So do we have two parts here? Or some people even say there's three steps here. That you have to confess, you have to believe, but you believe in Jesus, that he died for your sins, but you have to also believe that he is the Lord of your life. We would call that lordship salvation. We've talked about that a little bit before. And so this is a problem, Then there are these different views here, and there are some different ways in which that has been expressed. For example, in the 19th century, one of the most well-known theologians is Charles Hodge, uh, he's a Calvinist, Reformed theologian. He, uh, he lived from 1797 to 1878 and was uh, taught theology at Princeton from 1851 to 1878. And it was due to, he was the head of three generations. His son was A.A. A. Hodge and his grandson was Casper Hodge. And along with B.B. Warfield at the turn of the last century, they established basically what became known as Princetonian theology. They were the bulwark of orthodoxy against the intrusion and invasion of 19th century liberalism. There are many great things that they said, but this is what uh, Charles Hodge said. He's no relationship to Hodge is. Zane had an S on the end of his name. Some people get those things confused. Charles said the two requisites for salvation mentioned in this verse are confession and faith. They are mentioned in their natural order as confession is the fruit and external evidence of faith. So for him, confession is the automatic uh, response to, to, to faith. He goes on to say in his epistle to the Romans that the public profession of religion or confession of Christ is an indispensable duty. It's indispensable. That means you can't do without that public profession or confession. That is, he says, in order to salvation, we must not only secretly believe, but also openly acknowledge that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. Not just Lord, but prophet, priest, and king. I didn't know what those three words meant for many years after I was saved, so 
Maybe I wasn't saved until many years later. I don't know. Though, what? <laughs> Maybe not today. I don't know. If Hintz were here, he would say I wasn't one of the elect, but we all know Hintz is wrong. Um, Though faith and confession are both necessary, he said, they are not necessary on the same grounds nor to the same degree. How do you differentiate? The former, he says, is necessary as a means to an end, as without faith we can have no part in the justifying righteousness of Christ. The latter, that would be confession, as a duty, the performance of which circumstances may render impracticable. So how can it be necessary and it might be impracticable? I don't know. So he goes on to say the thing to be confessed is that Jesus Christ is Lord. I thought he just said prophet, priest, and king. I'm confused. Okay. So this is his view. Sandy and Hedlum wrote the commentary in the uh, International Critical Commentary series on the Epistle of the Romans, and they write, What is demanded of a Christian is the outward confession and the inward belief in him. At least they got the order in the biblical order there. And these sum up the conditions necessary for salvation. The Arminian Godet wrote, these are the two conditions of salvation, for while faith suffices to take hold of the finished expiation, when this faith is living, it inevitably produces profession, and from this follows incorporation into the flock already formed by means of invocation and baptism. So this is where a lot of Christendom is in understanding this particular verse. They understand it to be a verse related to how to get into heaven, and they understand that it's a two-step process. Some of them have different views as to how those relate uh, to one another. So another view, one presented by Tom Schreiner, this is the view that you have to uh, have faith and confession. He believes both are necessary. He is a uh, professor at Southern Baptist Seminary, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he is almost a hyper-lordship guy, okay? He is almost hyper-lordship. He, he go, goes so far, uh, as, so far in what he states, he almost has a Roman Catholic view of you have to continually believe or you weren't ever, ever saved. He says, faith involves the doctrinal confession that Jesus is, is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. In any case, the confession that Jesus was appointed as Lord at his resurrection was a teaching held in common by the earliest Christian community. Such a confession is inseparable from a heart conviction uh, you believe in your heart, which involves personal trust. He goes on to say that uh, in there that, first of all, there must be uh, faith in the heart. Or, excuse me, this goes to another commentator, another Reformed commentator, uh, William Hendrickson. First of all, there must be faith in the heart. Without such faith, a confession with the lips would be mockery. But also, even if there is faith in the heart, confession with the lips is not only required, but altogether natural if the faith is genuine. Faith and confession should be combined. Now, that's a view that you have to do both of those elements. A second interpretation says that believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth are roughly synonymous phrases. Because in their view, when you, the person to whom you're confessing with your mouth is God. You are telling God, I believe Jesus died for my sins. That's your confession. 
Okay, so for them, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth are roughly roughly synonymous. I think a problem with that is the text clearly states that belief is in the heart, which refers to the soul, and confession is with the mouth. That's a different location. Confession and belief are two different activities. Heart and um, heart and mouth are two different locations. So how can these really be synonymous? Uh, one writer is uh, Robert Mounts. He's the father of Bill Mounts. Many of you know of his uh, Greek grammars. And he writes in his Romans commentary, to believe with one's heart means to commit oneself at the deepest level to the truth as revealed and experienced. Interesting term. Confession, he says, is giving expression in words to that conviction. Philip says of the one who believes, quote, it is stating his belief by his own mouth that confirms his salvation. So he's just putting words to what is in his heart. John Widmer of Dallas Seminary writes in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, they are chronologically together. So he would see them as happening almost simultaneously. He says salvation comes through acknowledging to God so his confession is confession to God, that Christ is God and believing in him. So he's not looking at this as teaching lordship, but recognizing that the term Jesus is Lord is merely an admission of his deity. Whitmer is correct on that point. Lewis very Chafer, just because we are Chafer Seminary, we ought to look at what Chafer says in his... In his uh, um, Systematic Theology, he says, It cannot be unobserved that the confession of verses 9 and 10 is declared to be a calling on the name of the Lord. He's gone a step further than anybody else and actually looked at the context. It's declared to be a calling on the name of the Lord. In other words, this confession is that unavoidable acknowledgement to God on the part of the one who is exercising saving faith. But you see, he still thinks of this verse as one that is talking about the gospel and how to get into heaven. Okay, that's an issue, a hermeneutical issue we have to resolve. So, Calvin. We're going to talk about Schaefer. We ought to at least talk about Calvin. Calvin says, God completes our salvation even when he makes faith, which he implants in our hearts, to show itself by confession. So God is going to put faith in your heart, and you will inevitably make a public uh, profession. So that's all we'll go there. Let's get on to looking at what the issues are. To get to the meaning of this verse, we have to investigate several things. First of all, we have to understand what justification describes. Justification is a word that's used in the ESV. Other translations, every other translation other than the NIV, NIV gets it really badly wrong just like the ESV does. Uh, it's not talking about justification. All the other translations says you believe under righteousness. Okay, that's a difference than, being, than justification. We'll see that in a minute. So we have to see what that describes, what righteousness means. We have to see what the confession entails. We have to understand the meaning of the phrase, Jesus is Lord. We have to understand what belief is. And we have to understand if belief is different from confession with the mouth. If, and the connection then between the terms saved and justified. Are they synonyms? I'm looking at the ESV use of justified. There's righteousness in the other versions, English versions. What's the connection? Are they synonyms? Are they talking about two different things? Well, essentially, if you want to boil this whole thing down, what we really need to answer is the question is that when Paul uses the word saved here, is he talking about getting into heaven 
or is he talking about something else? And secondly, when he uses the term righteousness, is he talking about imputed righteousness at the instant of salvation, or is he talking about experiential righteousness, which comes after salvation? Now, that sums it up in a nutshell. If he's talking about getting into heaven, he's talking about what we say is phase one salvation, justification. And so the righteousness then would be uh, experiential righteousness. The salvation would be justification salvation. The righteousness would be imputed salvation. And this is a gospel verse. But if he's not talking about phase one justification salvation, then he's not talking about imputed righteousness. If he's talking about some other kind of deliverance other than soteriological justification salvation, then the righteousness would relate to experiential righteousness. Now, we ought to ask the question, what does the context say? As Andy pointed out last night, there are basically three laws of real estate and three laws of Bible study. Real estate, it's location, location, location. In Bible study, it is context, Context and context. If you take the text out of the context, you're left with a con job. Okay? And that's what a lot of people do when they study the Bible. They don't look at the context. That's one of the most significant aspects of your biblical interpretation. And so we have to understand what the context is. And if I were to tell you that that we were working on a real estate location in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, what would the context be? Anybody know? One of the largest Orthodox Jewish uh, demographics in the country. So you're in a Jewish location. So what are you going to be talking about? Something related to Jews. When we look at anything in Romans 9, 10, or 11, it's the same context. Romans 9, 10, 11, Paul is talking about Israel. And that's the context of those three chapters. And so whatever he says in those three chapters, we have to understand it with reference to Paul's argument in Romans in terms of demonstrating that God's plan for Israel is still going to go forward. He hasn't turned his back on his people. He has temporarily removed them from a place of blessing. But eventually he will restore them to the promises, the promises and the covenants uh, that he gave to the fathers still belong to the Jewish people. So that is uh, definitely a significant aspect, and we're going to understand the context. So we have to focus upon that. Now, when we look at the context of Romans, in the context of these two verses, we're in the midst of Paul's statement about Israel and God's relationship to Israel and God's plan for Israel in relationship to his righteousness in Romans 9 to 11. Now, that lies within a broader context, and that is Paul's overall discussion that goes from Romans chapter 1 to Romans chapter 11. Now, for the purpose of this paper I'm, and this presentation, I'm just going to hit a couple of high points, and that is that in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul is talking about how to be justified. He first talks about the problem of sin and the condemnation of man, and then he talks about how man is justified by faith alone in chapter 4 and develops that into chapter 5, into reconciliation, the implication and result of that. And then Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8 focus on what? 
They focus on the spiritual life. He leaves how to be justified behind, and starting with Romans 6.1, he starts talking about how the justified person lives. Okay? So we're not talking about phase one salvation, how to get to heaven anymore after chapter 5. We're talking about now how that justified person is going to, uh, going to live on the, on the earth. Now the central verse for Romans is found in Romans 1, 16 to 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God uh, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That tells us that he's going to be talking about application related to Jews and application related to Gentiles. And he says, For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So throughout this epistle, what Paul is doing is explaining about how the righteousness of God is vindicated in his relations with the human race, with his relations to the unsaved in 1 through 5, its relation to the saved in 6, 7, and 8, and its relations to Israel in 9, 10, and 11. Now, there are four... I've got the wrong number up here. Those of you who know me know me. I'm not like Charlie. I'm number challenged. There are four major factors from context. The first is the Israel connection. The Israel connection, we have to address the fact, is Paul talking about Israel here in terms of individual salvation for Jewish people, where the focus is on individual Jews and uh, individual salvation from eternal condemnation, or is he talking about the final physical salvation or deliverance of the Jewish people prior to the establishment of his kingdom in the future? Okay, so is this personal justification or corporate deliverance? Is he talking about getting individual Jews saved, or is he talking about the corporate fulfillment of God's plan to the Jewish people? So this is a major issue. A lot of people have trouble with this uh, category of corporate or individual. But we make a lot of decisions, a lot of things happen in life where we deal with nations as corporate entities. We talk about the church all the time as a corporate entity. The church glorifies God on the earth, but not every member of the church glorifies God. But corporately, the church glorifies God on the earth. Okay, so we're talking about the church as a corporate entity. As we have problems with this as Americans, we've been so ingrained in personal, individual liberty and individual can-do mentality that we've lost a sense of sort of the corporate team player mentality, which is what you have in Scripture. When God talks to Abraham, he talks about how he is going to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. The term seed is one of those nouns that it involves a, 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 a whole group of people, okay? And that word seed involves uh, a corporate entity, okay? So that's what we're talking about here, uh, originally from the context in Romans chapter 9, is that the question is, has God forgotten about his people Israel, it doesn't say has God forgotten about individual Jews because Paul's got a lot of individual Jews that are being saved. He's asking the question, has God forgotten about his people? That's a corporate term. We're talking about a corporate entity. 
and so all the way through Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, when you look at this term Israel, it's always looking at the entity, at that corporate entity. So when we look at this term, we're talking about is Israel as a national ethnic whole in contrast to talking about individuals within that group. So that sets, sets up the context. Uh, so there's nine things I think we ought to look at here that support this. First of all, God's promises are made to the corporate whole, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom as a people belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God in Romans 9, 4 through 5. Second, the election of God or the choice of God is not for individual salvation in Romans 9.11. He is clearly talking about his selection of nations. Uh, he's talking about God's choice of a nation through whom he would accomplish his divine purposes in human history. Third, we know from Romans 9.13 that the choice of Jacob and Esau was not for their personal individual salvation, but for their destinies of their descendants as national people groups. God's choice of Jacob over Esau clearly viewed them as nations, not as individuals. Genesis 5, 25, 23 says, And the Lord said to her, that is, Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from uh, within you shall be divided. He's talking about their corporate destinies. Fourth, in, uh, throughout Romans 9 to 11, Paul uses corporate terminology. He talks about Israel, he talks about my people, he talks about the children of Israel rather than terms related to individuals. Fifth, in the same way, he uses the term Gentiles to describe God's plan for that entity without reference to individual destinies. Sixth, Paul uses these corporate terms to generalize about God's plan for the whole group. Though clearly individuals within each group do not conform to those general statements. For example, in Romans 9.30, Paul generalizes that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. In contrast to that statement, he says that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. Not all Gentiles pursued, um, did, not all Gentiles failed to pursue righteousness and not all Jews pursued, pursued a law-based righteousness. This is just a general term of what was true for the corporate entity. Seventh, as Paul continues into chapter 11, he still uses terms related to corporate Israel. He asks, has God rejected his people in Romans 11.1? 1, and answers, God has not rejected his people, Romans 11.2. Clearly, though, that within that group of people, there are some who are saved and some who are, some who are not saved. The eighth point, the plural pronouns, that is, they, in Romans 11, 11 to 12, continue to refer to the corporate entity of Israel as in Romans 11, 23 and following. And then ninth, in his conclusion, Paul speaks of all Israel being saved, Romans eleven twenty six. From these observations, we learn that Paul's focus is on God's plan for national ethnic Israel in contrast to God's plan for individual Jews. The question is, has God turned his back on the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The answer is no. He is going to deliver them, and all Israel, a reference to the remnant at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. So the third thing related to context is that the context is talking about Israel's future and final deliverance. It's talking that God will eventually deliver Israel, and this is seen through the quotation from Joel 2.32, 
which comes just after our passage. We're talking about Romans 10, 9, and 10. Two verses later, we have a quote from Joel 2.32. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is this justification salvation? Or is this physical deliverance from the armies of the Antichrist to prevent the annihilation of the Jewish people at the end of the tribulation, at the end of the day of the Lord, which is the topic of Joel 2 and Joel 3? Joel 2 and Joel 3 isn't talking about which Jews are going to get into heaven. It's talking about the survival of the Jews at the end of the day of the Lord. So calling on the name of the Lord to be saved may not be talking about getting into heaven. Now, if that getting into heaven is a part of the original context, maybe it's not part of what Paul is applying at, at, this, particular, uh, at this particular time. Now, when we look at this uh, quotation from the Old Testament, Joel 2.32, the word that is translated saved uh, up here is this word in the Hebrew, which is the word melet. I've transliterated down here at the bottom. And according to the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament, uh, it reads, the most prominent facet of meaning is of deliverance or escape from the threat of death, either at the hands of a personal enemy or a national enemy or by sickness. That would be the concept of healing. How about that? This word is not yesha, which is the word from which we get Yeshua, Jesus, which is the word saved, it's a different word, isn't it? Interesting. Then we have a word in the parallelism for Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there shall be deliverance, and that's the word pellet over here. Palat is the verb, and according to the New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis, this is a word that relates to the appealing to Yahweh for legal vindication against false accusations. In other words, individual complaints, psalmists cry for divine deliverance from sickness or from the distress of the elderly or from dire straits. One psalmist recalls how Yahweh delivered Israel's trusting ancestors uh, from their enemies. In other words, this is a word that talks about physical, literal deliverance from oppression from enemies, not salvation from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So the original context from Joel 2.32 isn't talking about deliverance or salvation from the lake of fire. So maybe the context in Romans 10 doesn't have anything to do with deliverance from eternal condemnation from the lake of fire. Maybe Paul's actually talking about something else. So when we look at Joel 2.32, it talks about this, this deliverance, and this seems to be picked up in, uh, at the end of the section of Romans 9 to 11, when we look at the fourth category of context, is that the broad context of Romans 9 to 11 is talking and moving towards a realization that the Messiah will return and deliver Israel from her enemies. So that when we get to Romans 11:26, we read, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written, doesn't say the Lord, it doesn't say the Messiah, it says the Deliverer, using the word uh, Ruamai, not, uh, not Sozo, but Ruamai, a different word that can refer to del physical deliverance, says the Deliverer, not the Savior, will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
And so as we look at this uh, messianic deliverance, we recognize that this has to do with something related eschatologically to Israel and their national deliverance and restoration, which is frequently referred to in the Old Testament as being saved. So in light of Paul's use of various Old Testament quotations and terms, all surrounding the context, it's most likely that Romans 9 to 11 is not concerned about personal justification, which was covered in chapters 1 through 5, but it's focusing on God's fulfilling his plan to, to deliver Israel from her enemies and restore her to the land that he promised in the Abrahamic covenant and the land covenant and to establish his kingdom upon the earth. So this is the focus in messianic deliverance. So Paul actually de- begins to dis- de- develop this in Romans 9, 27 to 29. This is a very interesting passage, and it's significant because it helps us to understand the context is not being uh, justification, salvation at all. He is quoting from the Septuagint version of Isaiah 10.22. Let me just read the context first. Isaiah, he says, also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He uses the word sozo there. Now, sozo can mean healing. Sozo can mean deliverance from a trial. Sozo can mean uh, salvation from eternal condemnation, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, Ephesians 2.8, um, Titus 3.5 is another place. Uh, but here it's talking about the deliverance, physical deliverance of the remnant at the end of the tribulation. Goes on citing Isaiah, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, the Lord of Sabaoth is the Lord of the armies, uh, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now, when we look at that first verse, Romans 9.27 uses the word sozo there to be saved. Now, he gets this from looking at Isaiah uh, 10.22. So I put Isaiah 10.22 up here in in Greek for those of you who are uh, literate in Greek. Here's your word, sothesetai, which refers to uh, salvation in the uh, future passive. And this is the word translated saved. Here it is in the English, for though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them, wait a minute, does it say a remnant of them will be saved? What does it say right there? Will return, my goodness. What does it say in the Hebrew? That's the important thing. What does the Hebrew say? Well, the Hebrew word there is shuv. It's not Yeshua. What, what does shuv mean? It means to turn to turn back, to return. So obviously the original context of Isaiah 10.22 certainly didn't have anything to do with justification, salvation from eternal condemnation, the lake of fire, but the physical deliverance of Israel. The The translators of the Septuagint understood that, and so they just summarized it by using the word sozo because they're talking about It's legitimate to use that word to refer to physical deliverance. And so, again, we see that in the context of Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10, 
where that context really begins to narrow, starting at the end of Romans chapter 9, it introduces the context of the physical deliverance of the remnant at the end of the tribulation. So that Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, is he talking about eternal salvation from the lake of fire here, or do you think maybe he is talking about something else? So far, we have a pretty good context that he's probably talking about something else. Now, there are... um, it's another passage we can look at, Jeremiah 31, 7 to 8. Jeremiah 31, uh, 7 to 8. For thus says the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. This is talking about that physical deliverance and the, just prior to the restoration of Israel to the land. We see the same thing in Isaiah 25, 9. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. That's Yasha. But it's a physical deliverance. It's talking about what happens at the end of the, uh, at the tribulation period. Same thing in Isaiah 43, 5, and Jeremiah 31, 7. They cry out, O Lord, save us, your people, the remnant of Israel, uh, just prior to the end of the day of the Lord, as well as in uh, passages like, I'm, I don't have, I'm not going to take the time to read all of these, Jeremiah 46, 27, and in Zechariah 8, 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save Yasha, my people, from the land of the east and from the land of the west. See, that's talking about the, the Israel in the diaspora. It's not talking about them. I will save them because they're lost and they're dead in their sins. It's talking about they're scattered, and I'm going to restore them to restore the remnant to the land. Okay, so there's three things we've learned contextually. First of all, we've learned that Paul uses the term justification to refer to phase one salvation. As evangelicals, in American evangelical lingo, when we're talking about, brother, are you saved, we use that term saved always to refer to getting into heaven. And so whenever we look at the Bible and see the word saved, we think that's what the biblical author is talking about, that he's talking about getting into heaven. But the word saved, sozo in the Greek, yasha in the Hebrew, can refer to a healing from a disease. It can talk about a physical deliverance from enemies. It can be used of the ongoing life after justification, and it can be used to talk about uh, glorification. So the word sozo and yasha have a wide range of meanings. And, and in fact, uh, one writer has cataloged all of the uses, and only about 43%, uh, 41 or 43% of the uses of saved in the New Testament describe phase one justification salvation. But yet when most of us hear the word saved, we think it always means that. So we have to sort of get slapped in the face a little bit and say, wake up. If only 41 or 43% of the uses refer to phase one, then maybe when we're reading it in a lot of places, it's not talking about that. 
It's clear in some places, but in other places it can refer to some some other things. So Paul uses justification in Romans to refer to the doctrine of the individual salvation from the eternal penalty of sin, and he uses the terms related to salvation in Romans to refer to either the spiritual life after justification or he uses it to refer to our completed salvation when at glorification, or he refers to the completion of the whole of the whole process. So it's unlikely that Romans ten nine and ten just on a statistical basis would address justification from eternal damnation just by the use of the word saved. Second, we learn that the focus of Romans 9 to 11 is on God's plan for Israel as a corporate entity, not his plan for the individual justification of Jewish uh, individuals. Third, we learn that Romans 10, 9, and 10 must be interpreted in the light of the use of 12 surrounding quotes from the Old Testament. When you look at Romans chapter uh, Romans chapter 10, Starting with Romans 9.28 down through about 10.16 or 17, you have 12 quotes from the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament context. It's a Jewish neighborhood in Romans 9 to 11, and it's a really Jewish neighborhood. It's an Orthodox neighborhood when you get to the verses immediately surrounding Romans 10, 9, and 10. And so on that basis, we would say it's highly suspect that we are talking about individual justification. Now, the next thing we need to understand are these word pairs I mentioned earlier, and that is understanding salvation and righteousness in Romans and how Paul uses them. So we have to understand salvation in terms of the three stages, or some have called it the three tenses of salvation. Andy had a chart last night. I use this chart. Phase one is justification. It takes place at an instant in time when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute, paid the penalty for our sin, and at that point God the Father imputes to us the righteousness of Christ. He sees that we possess the righteousness of Christ, and he declares us judicially to be righteous. It is called a forensic justification. And we have the, we have the righteousness of Christ as the basis for our justification. After that, we have to grow. We've been given birth to, we have positional righteousness, but in reality, we're still pretty scuzzy. We're still pretty dirty. We're covered with a lot of sin and carnality because we just don't know any better, and we're wallowing around in that sin. So we have to learn to grow. We have to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. That spiritual growth is spiritual life. Justification is based upon imputed righteousness, but the spiritual life is based upon experiential righteousness. It's how we grow when we are obedient to the Lord, Uh, As we're walking by the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit produces experiential righteousness in us as a fruit of the Spirit and a fruit of the Word. Phase three, salvation is used to refer to glorification when we are separated from this body, separated from sin, and we receive our glorified body. So in phase one, we are saved from the penalty of sin, eternal condemnation. In phase two, we are saved from the power of sin, uh, we are being saved. Day, Dr. Rodmacher used to say, I was saved yesterday, I'm saved today, I'll be saved tomorrow, I'll be saved day after tomorrow. I'm saved every hour throughout every day as I am growing in Christ. 
but he's using saved in relation to phase two. Phase three is being saved from the presence of sin. We will be saved. In Romans chapter five, Paul says, you who have been justified by faith will be saved in the future. So you have a completed completed justification, but we haven't been saved yet. That's future. So there is using it as phase three. So we understand that when we look at this word salvation, it's probably not talking about phase one. It's probably talking about some other nuance. Okay? Righteousness. So we have to make a decision here. Does righteousness uh, have its... uh, uh, meaning earlier in, in Romans, which is the idea of imputed righteousness, which is the basis for our justification. That is referred to as imputed righteousness, or does this refer to experiential righteousness? This is something that is developed only after we are regenerate, as we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we call this uh, imp- uh, we call this experiential or ethical righteousness that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. After Paul concludes his discussion of justification in Romans chapter 5, he begins to talk about living, how the righteous should live, how those who are righteous by faith should live. And he uses the Greek word dikaiosune, and in Romans chapter 6 through 8, dikaiosune only refers to experiential righteousness. So listen, because I'm probably lost a lot of you by this time. We're going to back it up. If we're talking, if salvation is not talking about phase one or imputed righteousness, then it seems that the only option other than that is experiential righteousness. And in fact, in Romans 6 through 8, righteousness is used, well, it depends on which text you use. The majority text uses it 13 times. The Nestle-Alon text uses it 11 times. We'll go with the majority text. In Romans 9, I mean, it's used a number of times in 6 through 8, and it always refers to experiential righteousness. So when we get to Romans 9 to 11, we have to ask this question. Since Paul has left behind his discussion of justification in chapter 5, and he uses righteousness only for experiential righteousness in Romans 6 through 8. What meaning does righteousness have in Romans 9 to 11? Thirteen times. Thirteen times he uses the word dikaiosune in Romans 9 to 11. What's interesting is they all fall between Romans 9.28 and Romans 10.10. That's a very narrow slice of these three chapters. And when he uses them here, it is my belief that he uses them in reference to experiential righteousness. In Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Paul argues that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness. He's talking about experiential righteousness. They couldn't pursue imputed righteousness, could they? That would have to be experiential righteousness. He says, um, he says that, um, in, for example, when we go back to Romans 8, 1, 18 to 32, Paul emphasizes that the Gentiles suppressed the truth in unrighteousness and they pursued moral degeneracy. So they, that what he means by pursuing unrighteousness in Romans 9.30 must be related to the pursuit of moral degeneracy in Romans 1, 18 to 32. 
So the righteousness under discussion is an experiential righteousness, not an imputed righteousness. We're still talking about the context. We haven't even started talking about Romans 10, 9, and 10 yet. And so the righteousness then mentioned in Romans 9.30 must also be experiential righteousness. In contrast, he says in Romans 9.31 that the Jews pursued a law leading to righteousness. And while it is true that they sought righteousness through the works of the law, Paul has already emphatically declared that the law could never lead to positional or imputed righteousness. That's Galatians 2.16. So imputed righteousness can't be his meaning in Romans 9 because you can't pursue imputed righteousness by the law. So that, that option is excluded. That means that he must be talking about experiential righteousness, and that would be, make sense because he keeps going back to the Torah here, especially passages like Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy 30, verse 11, he talk, says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. He's talking to the people who are mostly regenerate. And he says, it's not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it, but the word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. He's talking about the fact that as a as God's people, they need to live a certain way. The Mosaic Law is describing the ethical behavior of God's people. So again, this is not talking about imputed righteousness, it's talking about it's talking about ethical righteousness. In the, in the law, in Leviticus 26, 11 to 13, and Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14, where it lists, if you're living in the law and obedience, I will bless you, and it lists all the blessings, that's experiential righteousness. If you're obeying me, that's experiential righteousness, I will bless you. So again, the context from these passages in, uh, related to the law are all talking about uh, experiential righteousness. So here's the point. The first nine uses of dikaiosune in Romans 9.30 to 10.5 refer to ethical or experiential righteousness. Why in the world would Paul suddenly change to imputed righteousness? That just doesn't make sense. He's, that's not the context. So as Paul continues, he's still speaking of experiential and sanctifying righteousness in Romans 10.8 which borrows from language that he, he summarizes from these four verses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So uh, he continues to talk about experiential righteousness and exper uh, experiential sanctification in the nation. He's instructing them on how they should live as God's people in the promised land. Okay? So are you with me? Let's keep going. And he talks about the fact that God's word has come to them in a verbal and written form. That uh, the word has come to them, it is near them. He says, uh, the word is very near you in your mouth, it's verbal in your heart. It's been written down and you have memorized it. Uh, so that is what he is talking about. Now, that's important because he's using these terms, mouth and heart, in what verses? Romans 10, 9, and 10. See, he doesn't just use that language and pull it out of thin air. He's getting it from the language in Roman, I mean, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, uh, verse 14. So now we have to ask the question, 
Now we have to ask the question, what does it mean to confess with the mouth? These two terms, mouth and heart, stand out as another pair of key terms in Romans 10, 9, and 10. But like saved in righteousness, these words must be used in the light of their context. They're first mentioned in Romans 10, 8, where Paul's quoting loosely from Deuteronomy 30, 14. And he uses the term mouth to refer to what comes out of the mouth. It's a figure of speech. And he's using the word heart uh, to describe the seat of intellectual activity as it is often used in the scriptures. They are two different activities from two different locations. The reason I say that is because I quoted earlier people like Whitmer and Chafer are almost trying to make them synonymous. But what we have here is two distinctly different activities, and there's a reason why he puts confession and, and belief early on there uh, in that order in Romans 10, 9, and 10. So that as Paul states this, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, he is reminding his readers in the first century that they're in a similar position to the Jews of Moses' time. Like the Jews of Moses' time, uh, they have the word available to them. They knew the law, and they knew about its fulfillment in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved and justified, and they knew that only by living in obedience could they produce experiential righteousness. And so in a similar way to God's deliverance of Jews from calamity, uh, Jews from calamity, God would also be delivering Gentiles from judgment of his present wrath, a term that's used of God's judgment on the human race back in Romans chapter 1. So these passages that apply this to Gentiles are just talking about the fact that God also will deliver the Gentiles. Now, when it talks about confession, when it talks about confession, this is sometimes seen as private, as in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we admit and acknowledge our sins to God, that's private. But in most cases, it's a public admission or acknowledgement of something. So confession with the mouth, then, is related here to something that is verbally articulated. It's audibly enunciated. They speak out. And this makes sense when you look at the subsequent verses that follow the ones we're looking at. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Confession, as Chafer rightly pointed out, must be understood in terms of calling upon the name of the Lord in Romans 10.12 and 10.13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Paul is three times emphasizes those who call on the Lord from Romans 10.12 through 14, and that helps define what it means to be uh, uh, to confess with the mouth. Now remember, Joel 2.32 comes up in the next verse. Joel 2.32 is very specific. It's talking about what happens at the end of the period known as the day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered from those final judgments around the time of the campaign of Armageddon when the remnant has fled. Because what has happened is that those who are believers in Jesus, there's no other reason for a Jew to listen to Jesus unless he's trusted in him as Messiah. And if they trusted him as Messiah, they are what? Justified already. And, and Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you see these things happen, those in Jerusalem flee into the hills of Ju Judah. 
I don't think unbelieving Jews are going to flee into the hills of Judah. But those who already trusted in Jesus as Messiah are already justified, and they're going to flee because Jesus said so. Unbelievers aren't going to care what Jesus said, but believers are. And when they, as individuals who are already justified, flee towards uh, the hills of Judah and across into Edom, when they come together as a corporate entity, it is there that they are going to call upon the name of the Lord to come and deliver them. It is there that they are going to reverse the sin of Romans, I mean of Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, they accused Jesus of having his power from Beelzebul, and that brought about a national punishment for sin, an irreversible punishment of, of, their, of their rejection of the kingdom and rejection of Jesus as the king and the Messiah, which led to the destruction of the nation in A.D. 70. What reverses that is when they call upon Jesus to rescue them, to deliver them at the end of the tribulation period, and then those who call upon the name of the Lord... Uh, will be saved. Romans 10, 14 says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? See, belief comes before calling. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? A hearing comes before faith. They hear the gospel. How shall they not hear without a preacher? And how they preach unless they are sent? Now, the phrase calling on the name of the Lord is a frequent fa- uh, phrase in the Old Testament. And when you look at it, it's not necessarily a phrase that is related to justification which is how a lot of people want to do it. Calling on the name of the Lord is saying, I believe in Jesus. But throughout the Scripture, calling upon the Lord is something a child of God does when they're in a tight place and they need to be rescued. And this happens over and over again as people call upon the name of the Lord uh, to deliver them and to rescue them. So... What we see here is that this phrase conf- uh, about, uh, about uh, confession and calling upon the name of the Lord uh, quotes from Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, and focuses on the requirement of the nation to have experiential righteousness to enter the land. Remember what happened back when the, the Exodus generation came out? They disobeyed God. What did God say? You don't have experiential righteousness to go into the land. You have to have experiential righteousness to go into the land. The reason that Jesus didn't give the kingdom to the generation at his time was because they rejected the kingdom. They did not repent. They did not produce works in keeping with repentance. So they were not righteous. So the kingdom wasn't going to come. So what happens at the end of the tribulation is they're going to have this this remnant is going to be justified. They will be obedient and have experiential righteousness, and then corporately they will call upon the name of the Lord, and they will be delivered. And this is the thrust of what this means to confess Jesus as Lord. In the at the first advent, they denied Jesus was divine. They denied that he was God. They said he got his power from Satan. What they have to admit is that Jesus is God, that Jesus is not a creature, Jesus is divine, and that that he is the one that God sent to rescue them and deliver them from their sins. And so that sets, all of this just sets the context. Okay, let me skip a couple of verses here, and then I want to look at the structure of Romans 10, 9, and 10. This is the basic structure. We see here, using the ESV... If you confess with your mouth, this is a chiasm. The first line is mirrored in the last line. Because if you confess, confess is mentioned in that first line, line A, 
and in, down here in B with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Oh, let me go back. Okay. One confesses with his mouth one, and is saved. And the second two lines are parallel. You believe in your heart, and in B prime you have with the heart one believes. Now, ESV messes this up and says it's, it's justified. That really confuses you. That tells you what the interpreter's theology is. Actually, the New King James translates it more correctly, with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Now, that's a better translation to Kayasune there, and it's parallel to saved. Here's the point. If saved is phase one, then the righteousness is imputed righteousness. But if the saved is phase two, if the saved is deliverance related to experiential righteousness, and the righteousness in the next verse is experiential righteousness, which means that this verse isn't talking about individual justification and being delivered from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire at all. It is talking about God's plan and purpose being fulfilled that if uh, the remnant of Israel will call upon the name of the Lord, recognizing the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, if they confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus, that he is Lord, and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be delivered from their enemies. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, that's justification, I mean that's experiential righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So, as I said earlier, if saved is phase two experiential salvation, then righteousness needs to be understood as its counterpart, which is experiential righteousness. And that's our conclusion, that the verse isn't talking about justification, salvation, nor imputed righteousness, but focuses on the future deliverance of the remnant of Israel that calls upon the name of the Lord, the messianic hope, to deliver Israel from annihilation at the end of the time of Jacob's trouble. Anybody have any questions? Is that clear? You have a question, Bob. Uh, so the, they call out to the Lord in the middle of the tribulation? No, no not the, at the end of the tribulation. Okay. At the end of the tribulation. Middle, middle, middle of the tribulation. Here you go. Yes, the the deliverance comes when they've escaped to Basra, which is down near Petra, and the Lord will return and lead them across, uh, lead the 12 tribes across through Judah up to Jerusalem, where he will defeat the, he'll defeat the armies of the Antichrist down, down near Petra and Basra, and then he will lead a victorious army to Jerusalem, and then he will uh, defeat the enemies of the Antichrist there and go up on the Mount of Olives. A lot of throat clearing. Anybody got any water? Oh, I have some water here. Somebody (laughs) wanted to make sure that I would be well supplied. (sighs) Next question. This is a great gift from uh, from Todd Atwood. Last week, uh, there were six of us here, I think, that went on the Grand Canyon trip, and uh, water was very important there. 
and carrying a container that would carry your water was important there. But we also had uh, we we had names on our life jackets, you know, like Soap Canyon or Havasu Falls, and mine was Turkey Vulture. So they had. <laughs> Somehow we thought that was appropriate. They had that put on here so that I would uh, remember that and always have maybe something related to Turkey in there. Anyway, moving on. Any other questions? How could they have gotten it so wrong? What? How could all those guys have gotten it so incredibly wrong? Well, because we have this knee-jerk reaction that when we see saved and righteousness together, we think it's justification. And, uh, and this isn't unique to me. Do not at all think that somehow Robbie came up with all of this. No, 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 no. Um, I've put this as parts of this I've put together from studies. Uh, I did a paper for pre-trip some years ago on Romans 11. I originally wrote it as a doctoral student at Dallas, and part of the research on that paper was to discover that Israel throughout Romans 9 to 11 is always talking about corporate Israel. So that was part of it. Then a uh, professor of theology at Moody named John Hart did tremendous groundbreaking work on the structure of this, pointing out the the uh, chiasm there and the parallelism, demonstrating uh, clearly in an article that came out, I think that was in the uh, in Jodgis, in the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society, that that is not talking about individual salvation or individual justification. And there are other people who have worked on bits and pieces of that, and I may have supplied just a minor clarification and structuring there at the end, but I certainly did not uh, am not a loner in the way I'm treating this this passage, although the way I brought it all together may be may have a certain uniqueness in my presentation. So John. John always asks me hard questions. For the first time I met him in about 1998 when he was a student up there at Tyndale, he would always ask Tommy and me, he'd say, on page 32 in Dispensationalism, Ryrie says, would you please critique that? And we're like, Man, I haven't read that since <laughs> seminary. <laughs> um, how do you deal with uh, Romans 10, 16, um, but they have not all obeyed the gospel? And then he quotes Isaiah 53.1, which in the context speaks of, you know, the crucifixion of Christ, um, imputed righteousness, uh, Lord, who hath believed our report. And that seems to be a, 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 a justification uh, you look, you, passage in Romans 10.16. You looked at 10.16? 10, okay. I had to pull my log, log up. They did not all hear. See, they have to recognize. They have to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They have to call, recognize that He is Lord. Okay, that's part of of the good news. And He's recognizing here that that part of the problem that precedes their calling upon the name of the Lord for physical deliverance is they have to previously recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the end of the tribulation, it's corporate, it's not individual. That's a point I make. I don't know that I've heard anybody else make that point, that that before anybody's, any Jew is going to listen to Jesus to flee when you see the abomination of desolation and flee into the wilderness, they've got to care about what Jesus says. Why would they care about what Jesus says if they're not saved? If they're not a Christian, if they're, if they're a pagan, if they're... Um, if they're if they're following Judaism, 
Why would they care that Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee? So I assume that the, that for the most part, those who flee are going to be those who have uh, uh, been justified. They've trusted in Jesus as Messiah. So I think that that um, uh, that fits fits there, that they didn't all heed the, the good news. Uh, Lord, who has believed our report, that's from, uh, as you say, Isaiah 53.1. So that's how I take that. Was there somebody else over here? Oh, well, we need to record whatever you say, Dorothy. The people who are listening online all over the world need to hear your wonderful voice. I just want to thank you. You said one word tonight that you rarely hear from the pulpit anymore. And I want to thank you for it. And that's sanctification. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. That's right. Good words like sanctification and justification and reconciliation. That's exactly right. Dan, we have one down front here. Thanks, sir. Um, In NIV where it says, uh, verse 10, where it's talking about justified, and you're and you're saying a better translation is righteousness. Right. Okay. What what is the the Greek meaning of the word that's used for that? Well, what the the word that's used for there in, in verse verse ten, uh-huh. um, uh, Romans ten nine ten. Let me see. What I'm looking for um, dikaiosune, which is righteousness. Okay. It's not dikaiao or dikaios, which is justification. It's okay. the kaiosune, which is righteousness. And and what is what is that that I mean? What does that actual word mean? It means righteousness. Okay. As opposed to dikaios, which okay. means justification. Okay. Right. God's right living. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when you see the word righteousness, you have to ask your question: Is this talking about imputed righteousness, or is this talking about experiential righteousness? So if you see righteousness, you're you're talking about experiential. Here it is, yeah. but you know, in Romans, in the first five chapters, it's talking about uh, imputed righteousness. But starting in chapter six, all the way through six through eight, the topic is on how the justified lives. So that's experiential righteousness. So, so then the question becomes: How do these? 13 uses in this narrow section of Romans mm-hmm. 10, how is it used there? When you go back, and, and most of it's in Old Te- from Old Testament quotes. Mm-hmm. You go back to those Old Testament quotes in Deuteronomy, and you realize that Moses is talking about them of right living in the, in, in the land, and if they don't live in obedience, which is experiential righteousness, then, then God's going to discipline them. So if the original context is experiential righteousness, and that fits this context better than that, you, so that's, that's what I'm So you're making arguing. a great point for knowing the Greek words. Not only knowing the Greek words, but also understanding the context and how they're used sure, in the original sure. context. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So is there anything that pertains to the modern church in chapters 9 through 11 then? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Okay. It's talking about how how God is justified. What happens at the end of Romans Romans eight is what? Romans eight thirty eight and thirty nine. For I am persuaded that neither death and life nor height nor depth nor death and life nor angels preachify his powers and blah 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 shall separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well wait a minute, the Jew says God seems to have separated us from his love now. 
And so what Paul begins to answer, starting in Romans 9, is no, God is still righteous in his dealings with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has not permanently forsaken you. He will fulfill his literal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and deliver Israel at the uh, when the kingdom is established. So it's all related to God is going to fulfill his word. He hasn't forgotten his people, Israel. Um, I guess I'm sorry about that. I guess I'm trying to understand. I, I'm tracking right with you there in Romans 10. No problem. I can see clearly Rome, the Romans 10. It's the last few verses of Romans 9 is where I'm struggling a little bit just because the uh, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I've never understood that with regard to experiential. To me, that's always been uh, phase one. And what? so, when I look at those, when I look at verses 30 through 33, I'm, I mean, I'm seeing phase one. I guess I'm still struggling with that part. Well, he, he's, he's talking about he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That means if you, if those who believe in, in him as Messiah, they, they will not be left. God will not desert them. He will not disappoint them. And that's what he ultimate, where he ultimately goes is, no, God's not deserting you or disappointing you. He will eventually deliver you. Those who will call upon uh, the name of the Lord, God will save them. He quotes from Joel uh, 31. That's the fulfillment of that. He's not going to disappoint them. So he's just reminding them that even though, uh, you know, for for a time, for the Jewish people, Messiah is viewed as a stumbling block and a rock of offense. But he's ultimately not going to disappoint. He will fulfill those promises. Okay? Chew on that. We're done for tonight. Okay? I am going to ask uh, Dan Ingram if he would please dismiss us in closing prayer. Thank you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the Word of God. We're thankful for those who have applied themselves and for the exposition of it. We are dependent upon your Word, Father, for our growth. And we pray that you would continue to provide, provide the means and the men that we would be able to continue in this nation that was built on biblical principles to have the freedom to continue to glorify you. We ask for your protection and safety tonight and for your blessing on our service tomorrow, services tomorrow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.